Amen. What a blessing. I'm encouraged. I'm grateful for what the Lord's doing among us. Grateful for Him revealing Himself and calling us and our willingness to go. Let's grab our Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, be page 1344 on a pew Bible in front of you. Uh, also, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 8 if you're a little overzealous. and be a good opportunity for you to write in your Bible tonight. Uh, in the limited time we have, so as I go swiftly, uh, you can take notes. Ephesians 3. And we will uh, really just continue to build around all that I said this morning and uh, what I've said the last two Sunday nights that we were together. Let's start with a word of prayer and then let's go to the Lord through His Word. Father, we thank You for tonight. Thank You for the calling upon our lives to be a people available to be used by You. God, to span the globe, to go wherever You lead us and call us to go. Father God, we know that we are a uh, one family. And Lord, sometimes we can feel a little bit overwhelmed. And Lord, there's this thing inside of us. Father God, there's a part of our flesh that wants to resist and, and cry out, we cannot go everywhere. And Lord God, will you just uh, quiet that voice and remind us that we're to go where you send us. And Father, to be used where you lead us. And God, we are grateful and thankful to be your vessels. Pray that you continue to use us. Now as we turn to your word, we want to receive it as a gift directly from you, spoken by you for us, Lord. We believe that it is perfect and inerrant in every way. And so God, according to your purpose, will you use it in our lives tonight to encourage us, Father, to understand even deeper how it is we are to love you through examination of how it is you love us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I started this discussion with you that um, I, I pray has uh, been profitable in your minds. I know that I, I feel like that we've, uh, as we've talked about um, this way in which we love God, there's really been some, uh, some very, very uh, wonderful opportunities for us to gain a new uh, understanding of just when we're reading Scripture and how we're to approach the Lord. Tonight I want to talk to, us, to you a little bit about our sluggish hearts or the sluggishness of our hearts. Um, we have this tendency. It's just in us. It's in me. It's in you. It's in all of us. And we want to equate loving God with our dutiful obedience. And the reason we want to do that is, is, is simple. It, because it's manageable. You know, as we keep uh, God in a box, and as long as we exist uh, in our devotion, in our love with Him, with just being obedient within the bounds of, of what He says and that and that alone, we can manage it. But I want you to understand something. Where did the Pharisees come from that Jesus continually blasted every time He encountered them? They came from people who started out with, with every good intention to build a tower. You have to understand. They didn't wake up and say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to twist around God's Word and we're going to add all these things to it and we're going to make this hierarchy and we're going to just make ourselves seem better than everyone else. That's not what, what, it, what it was. They began by simply trying to obey all the law, but the better they became at it, the more 
uh, full of themselves they became and the, and the more they started to separate themselves from those who struggled and one thing led to another and pretty soon it was utter chaos and what they were doing was just uh, really just repulsive to the Lord Jesus when he, when he showed up on earth. And so the Bible will teach us that we want, and obviously I'm never going to encourage you to be disobedient, never. I can assure you of that. But the goal is for you and I to understand that obeying our amazing, wonderful, loving Heavenly Father should not be drudgery. It should be filled with joy. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. They are not burdensome. The Bible declares they're not. And so, joylessness in the Christian life is sin and it should be responded to with zealous repentance when you and I find ourselves in a place which we do where we are void of joy we need to repent for that as sin because it is because his commandments are not burdensome now the problem with this discussion is that it always leads to this these mental gymnastics that that our flesh wants to do And then I get in these conversations where people will say things to me like, well, pastor, um, maybe it's got to do with baptism. I I know I need to get baptized and I know that God uh, commands me to get baptized, but I'm just not really feeling uh, excited about that. I'm not feeling joy about that. I'm not, you know, I feel like if I did that, it would just be sort of a, a response of legalism. So therefore, I'm waiting to do that. No. See, first of all, you need to obey God and be baptized. And second of all, you need to repent for the sin of not being overjoyed at the opportunity you have to obey the Lord. You see, you're making His commandments burdensome. Obedience is always better than disobedience. Always. But John Piper says it this way. It is true that our hearts are often dead or sluggish. We do not feel the depth or intensity of, of affections that are appropriate for God or His cause. It is true that at those times we must exert our wills and make decisions that we hope will rekindle our joy. Even though joyless love is not our aim, nevertheless, it is better to do a joyless duty than not to do it, provided that there is a spirit of repentance that we have not done all of our duty because of the deadness of our hearts. So true. God cares about your affections. He cares about the way in which you conduct yourself as His child in regard to His Word and with regard to Him. And so the key to loving God is as I said this morning, is knowing and understanding the way in which God loves you. You see, when I am ministering into the life of a person who is broken, uh, they, they may not realize what I'm up to, but my goal is just to, in every possible conceivable way that I can, impart to them from every angle, every side, through every genre of Scripture the way in which God loves them. Because I know 
because the Word of God has taught me in my own life and through reading and studying it that when a person is consumed with the love that God has for them, they begin to experience freedom and healing. It is always, always, always the case. Why? Because God is love. He's the definition of love. The Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, obviously, if we want to love God correctly, what we need to do is we need to figure out, well, then how do I do that? In other words, if I want to love God correctly then I need to examine the person who wrote the book on love, right? I don't want to love God the way Tony perceives loving God. I don't want you to love God the way you perceive to love God. I want us all to love God the way He defines love, the way He loves us. And so if we become consumed with the way in which He loves us and then exert our Uh, our efforts and our affections at loving Him in return according to the way He loves us, something unbelievable happens. It does. It happens every time we're together. It happened in here this morning. That when I began to talk to you about the way in which God loves you, you you can feel it in your spirit. You can feel what happens in a room when people begin to grab hold of the fact that God genuinely loves them and they begin to understand a new facet of that love. Let me show you a picture in Isaiah 62. And I just do this because I want I want you to see that every time I talk about this, literally, I could open the Bible to any book and we could have this discussion. Any book in the Bible. Isaiah 62. Amazing. This poem where God is talking about His people uh, on the coming day of the Lord. And here's what He says. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment that the, the, maybe the sister passage to this, this, this brightness and this ruling from Jerusalem, we know that, that Jesus is going to be the one who illuminates uh, from Jerusalem. He's going to sit upon his throne. In Malachi chapter 4, the Bible says, But you do not fear, for, but you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. In other words, this is describing what's going to happen. It tells us just in, in, God tells us just in verse 1 that exactly what Jesus will do for undeserving sinners. Notice what he says. He says that I will not hold my peace. In other words, God is impatient about accomplishing this work in his people. You see that? God, God is, is, is not satisfied to wait. He wants to move. He wants this to come about. He's excited about His plan of redemption. He's excited about what's happening. These, these are things that God is, is, is amped up about. And He says that her salvation, in other words, the bride, meaning us, is as a lamp that burns. Now, what does the New Testament teach us about 
dreadful sinners saved by the grace of God. Philippians 2. Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, that our salvation, God takes what was once dead and dormant, He, he, he births us into His family, and through this amazing salvation, we become lights that shine amongst the people that we're around. Whether it's in, the, in South Dakota, whether it's in South America, whether it's on some other continent, or whether it's in your office or neighborhood or wherever you live. And so God is painting a picture of the, the, His zealous love for His people. Let's continue reading Isaiah 2, Isaiah 62, verse 2. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness. Isn't that great news? And all the, uh, all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will name. So the, the Gentiles are going to see the righteousness and all the kings are going to see glory and we're going to be called by a new name and the Lord's going to give us this name. Verse 3, You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem. That means like a crown, like a, a royal headdress, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So you're, you and me as His people are going to be as if we are the crown. Unto him as the king. Verse 4. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. Now that's good news. No longer forsaken. Nor shall your land anymore be termed desolate. So we're not going to be forsaken. We're not going to be desolate. But you shall now be called Hephzibah. This amazing, wonderful Hebrew word that means my delight is in her. Who's her? The bride. You. In other words, the Lord is saying, instead of being forsaken and desolate, now your name is going to be, my delight is in you. That's your new name. And then he says, and your land will be Beulah. That means married. In other, in other words, no longer single, no longer lonely, no longer estranged, but now married, taken, captive, loved. Committed to all of the beautiful picture that that is. The Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. In other words, I'm just simply saying that if, if you're at home alone and you're reading through the scriptures and you come to Isaiah 62 and you are, you are struggling and you're hurting and you're, and you're facing difficulty in your life, which many of us are, and you find yourself walking through uh, the valley of the shadow of death maybe, and you're just looking for something, and then God just begins to show you the way that He loves you in Isaiah 62, and then you get to verse 5. You only looked at five verses. And you get to verse 5 and He says, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You and me. That this is the, the Lord of the universe declaring His love and devotion. That He, is, he feels almost impatient. That He longs to, to bring this together. That he's, He so looks forward to what He has in store for us. And that... We're no longer forsaken or desolate. But 
our land is, is married and, and our name is his delight is in her, in us. So a couple weeks ago, I talked to you about how one way to, to invoke this in your spirit is through the discipline of meditation and reading the scripture where you just meditate on it and you just read it piece by piece and you just think about every part. And so we went through Psalm 19 and we allowed God to just open up our eyes to, to see. Tonight, I just want to take a moment and, and look at a prayer from scripture and hopefully you'll see how prayer plays such an amazing role in illuminating our hearts as to how God loves us. And not just our prayer, but the prayers of Scripture. Ephesians 3, I want you to see how Paul prays for the church at Ephesus that he loves so dearly. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Now, let me point a few things out about this prayer. Paul prays for these Ephesian believers. He prays, first of all, that they would be strengthened by the Spirit that is within them. He says, through this prayer, he prays that God would strengthen them in the inner man. Then he prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, these are, these are believers. So, they... they possess the Spirit of God, but Paul prays that, that, he would, that it would dwell in their hearts through faith, that there would be this dwelling, this long saturation, if you will, of, of Christ in their hearts. Then he prays that they would be rooted and grounded in love, able to comprehend the height and depth and width and length of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. So on one hand, he gives a description of all the, all the parameters or the dimensions of something that cannot even be comprehended. And yet he says that we would comprehend the dimensions of something that passes all knowledge. So this supernatural understanding of this, of what? Of this love and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Now here is the million dollar question. Why would the Apostle Paul pray this prayer for redeemed people? He's not praying this prayer for lost people. He's not praying this prayer for people who are apart from Christ. He's praying this prayer for people who have received all the fullness of God that comes of salvation. So that ought to make you ask some questions. That ought to make you start to think, now wait a minute, they're new creations. They, they, they have new hearts. And yet Paul prays this prayer. And what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's recognizing that loving God is a war. That's why he prays this. That's why we're having this conversation tonight. Because the vast majority of you that are listening to me right now are born again. 
And so the question would be, well, why? I mean, aren't I preaching to the choir? No, I'm not. I'm preaching to exactly who needs to hear this because it's a war. And so I'm wondering if over these conversations, some of you aren't sitting out there and saying to yourself, you know, I, 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 I know that I'm saved. I have full assurance of my salvation, yet my joy is not there. And I sit there and I listen to Pastor Tony talk through Psalm 19 and he just looks like his head's going to blow up. And I just think, why am I not like that? Or maybe you don't think that. I don't know. Maybe you're like, I'm glad I'm not like that. Because it's a war. It's not automatic. You see, not loving God is a sin. It's a sin for us. It's a sin for a believer to not be in love with God. And I don't mean just, yes, I love God. I mean in love with God. But you see... When we're, when we're left uninspired, when we're left unto ourselves, our affections for God will wane. You know that. And I know that. That's why we're so adamant about... See, one of the ways that our affection for God grows, that we talked about in the first uh, time we discussed it, was in our assembling together. You see, in our fellowship, it cultivates love in us. And that's exactly what Hebrews says. He doesn't, the Bible doesn't say don't forsake the assembling of yourself because you need to hear great sermons. That's not what it says. Read it. The Bible says that we're not to do that because it stirs up within us affection for the Lord. Now, then we said by reading a scripture and meditating on it would do the same thing. And now I'm saying through prayer, we need to understand that left alone. Listen, you check out a church. You stop coming to church, how long does it take you before you're a complete catastrophe? I mean, really, and here's the thing. See, wherever you are, we're all at different places. So for some of us in the room, the idea that if tomorrow by chance, and I've told you this before, if tomorrow by chance my day starts with an emergency phone call at 4.30 a.m., which launches me out of the room and off to the hospital without any opportunity to do anything other than brush my teeth, put on my, you know, flip-flops and a hat and go, then my day is, is not the way it needs to go. Not, not just because I'm there at 4.30 in the morning, it's because... I didn't get to read my Bible. You see? But for some of you, that's not part of your day. So see, you, you, you haven't experienced that. So you just, maybe you're like once a week. And so then for you, how many weeks does it take? Do you miss one week? And then it's bad? Two weeks? And then three weeks? And then pretty soon you... You see, because every no one in here would stand up tonight and say, you know, my testimony is that my entire Christian life has been a steady climb closer to God. No, it hasn't. There's been ups and there's been downs. We went through seasons of dryness, seasons of disobedience, seasons of... And why? Because when we changed our proximity, when we're out of fellowship, when we're not reading the Scripture, when we're not praying, our hearts begin to die. They wane. Our affections wane away. You see, here's what Hebrews 3 says. Exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know what this scripture says? How long does it take for your heart to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin? 
One day. One day. The Bible says every day or else it doesn't take long. We think, man, I'm, I'm walking with the Lord. I can go a week. I can. No, you can't. No, you can't. Your heart will begin to chase after other things immediately. Immediately. It's a war. It is not automatic. The, the, I, my heart breaks for someone who just thinks, I just come to God. I receive Him as Lord. I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm going to be with Him forever in heaven. And I'm just going to kind of ride the rest of the way out. To miss the whole point. To miss the entire opportunity that's before you. I mean, I'm not even going to go into the theological ramifications of the catastrophe on Judgment Day that that's going to lead to. But just the simple fact that that is absurd. But you see, why do we fail to pray? Really, let's just be honest. We fail to pray not because we're too busy, although that's what we say. We fail to pray not because we claim that we don't really know how to pray or what to pray, because that's not true either. We fail to pray because the love in our hearts wanes and goes towards the affection of the applause of the world. You see, when you start to pray less, it's because there's some applause out there that you like more. There's something out there that's calling you in. There's some, there's some person that's captivating you or some hobby that's captivating you or some thing that's captivating you. And the issue is love. The issue's love. I'm telling you, the greatest thing that you can do tonight is to commit your life to loving God more and more every day. Because listen, that right there is going to lead to everything great in your life. Everything. Right there. But love is a tricky thing. Our hearts are fickle. And man, I'm telling you, I have seen it time and time again. But when someone is just tracking along with the Lord and maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a, a health crisis. Maybe it's a financial setback. Maybe it's a job situation. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's... And suddenly, when, when things don't go the way we think they're going to go, we, our faith is rattled. And in that moment, instead of driving back to what we know we need to go to, to find our encouragement, exactly what Pam said tonight. The Word of God is where the encouragement lies. But you see, we don't want to admit it. But somewhere deep down in our flesh, at the end of the day, we just believe that our fellowship with God is always going to be there. And because He's so steadfast and so good, since He's not going to leave us or forsake us, then it's okay if we forsake Him. In other words, He'll be there when we come back. So if I take a little detour, if I go a different way, if I get out, when I, He'll be there. You see, our relationship with God, our fellowship with God is forsakeable because of His goodness. And so we'll actually use His goodness against Him. And we'll think, well, God, you're always there. You never change. You, you love me no matter what. So therefore, and who suffers? 
We do. We do. See, the problem with this whole concept is, is that it grossly underestimates the necessity of delighting in God to actually live the Christian life. You can't do it. You cannot live the Christian life apart from delight in God. It will not work. Will not work. And I hope that all of these passages of Scripture now are just confirming in your heart over and over and over and over what I'm saying. Let's look quickly at a familiar idea and maybe in a new way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, verse 1, We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. So... Quickly, Paul is in Corinth. This church is a disaster. This is his second letter to the Corinthians, or third if you want to be technical. So he's there with these Corinthian believers who are just riddled with sin and have all sorts of problems. And he's bringing to their attention this this offering by the churches of Macedonia towards the struggling, obliterated church in Jerusalem. And notice what he says down in verse 8. I speak not by commandment, he says, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. I mean, that's a mouthful right there. Paul says that he is testing the sincerity of their love, the Corinthians' love, by the diligence of others. So Paul clearly sees... That what the Macedonians have done on behalf of the struggling churches in Jerusalem is an act of great love. Are you with me? He's holding this up as an example to the Corinthians. He's going, you want to see what great love is? This is great love. Now, here's what we need to do. Why? Well, what do you mean, Paul? Why are you saying this? The Macedonians had given their possession, given what they didn't have, sacrificially, to feed the poor. Now, the Corinthians are giving. Giving's not their problem. Sin is their problem. But Paul is drawing a line and he's teaching them something. What is the difference between their giving? He says in verse 2, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy. You see that? The difference is the abundance of their joy. It's not the giving that differentiates, it's the feeling of delight in God that they have in the act of obeying what He commanded them to do. Even The reason I draw this out is because nothing makes you more agitated, irritated, and defensive than when I start barking at you about your finances. And I'm simply telling you that the problem with this whole understanding is that God is trying to express, listen, it's about joy. It's about giving with joy. What you don't even have. They're giving out of poverty beyond their ability. And Paul's saying, now this is the test. You see, consider. In chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, he'll say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, we say that all the time, but God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. But do we, do we, do you understand what that says? He doesn't love a non-cheerful giver. In other words, what he loves is when you give out of joy. He says, let each one give freely as he purposes in his heart, but not grudgingly, not grudgingly. So what are you saying? Well, then if I don't feel joy, I shouldn't give. No, you should give and then repent for not feeling joy. You see, we want to obey God, but we want to obey Him in joy. We want to realize the way in which He loved us, and we want to respond to Him according to that love. The Scripture is so beautiful. The Bible says that everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That, that, that's, what, that's what defines us as people. So what we need to do is engage ourselves. Engage ourselves. In things that will cultivate in us a love for God. That's why we want to stay focused on others and not on ourselves. That's why it's so wonderful to be able to, 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 to actually accomplish the great commission in a local family. That's why it's so amazing to see the outpouring of support for the things that God's doing among us. That's why we want to be a place where people can come and be discipled and be taught and learn and be loved and be encouraged because it's such a joy to just reciprocate that which we've received. To to realize that Broken people through salvation now shine, shine the glory of God. And here's, here's what I'm saying. When God gives you and I an opportunity to shine, we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's totally unmerited Favor, it is absolute grace that we get to shine. And so He gives us opportunity to shine. And we begrudgingly shine. We resistantly obey. Really? You see, that's a heart that simply hasn't treaded the depths of the Bible that sits in your lap. Every person that I know and every person that you know, that we together respect their walk with the Lord, their discipline as a believer, their, the Christian life that they live, they all have one thing in common. They have a deep, cultivated love for God. And they nurture that love continually because they recognize that it's a war and that this world is constantly, constantly trying to thwart that love, trying to put other things in in that place in my heart that belongs to God, trying to convince me that I've got to cling to earthly things or hope for earthly things. But I fight the battle every day. And prayer is one of the most effective weapons that we have. 
So that passage of Scripture that I ended with this morning out of Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, where the Lord says that He will vomit the lukewarm out of His mouth. It's interesting to me that, that two, two verses later, He says, I counsel you to buy from Me gold that has been refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, and you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. In other words, God takes these people who He just says are poor, blind, wretched, naked people that He's going to vomit out of His mouth, but then He counsels them to buy their gold from where? Not from the the gold shop down the street. From Him. Adorn yourself, brothers and sisters, with the gold that comes only from Him. And He concludes, Jesus says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. You knew He was going to finish with love. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Repent of what? Your lack of love. Your lukewarmness. What is the difference between lukewarm and hot? Love, zeal, passion, fervor. Where does that come from? It comes from the realization of the way in which you're loved. It comes from waking up on the lowest day of your life and opening the Bible to Isaiah 62 and being absolutely flabbergasted at the way in which God loves you. Realizing that after all you've been through, after all you've faced, after all you've suffered, after all your struggles, all your sins, all your brokenness, all of it, after all that, He says... I stand at the door and knock, and if you'll open the door, I'll come in and dine with you. We'll have intimacy together. We'll have a relationship together. That you'll be fully known and fully accepted for the first and only time in your entire life. There's only one love like that which I speak of. Only one. It cannot be found in human beings. It can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand, bow our heads. Close our eyes. Father God, thank You. Thank You that You you saw fit to know the depravity of our hearts and to give us Your Word, but not just Your Word, Lord. Not just, not just the law, not just the prophets, but Lord God, descriptions of Your love for us on nearly every page, Lord God. Thank You so much. Thank You, Father that there's every corner of every place in the Bible is just replete with descriptions of the way in which you love your children. And Father, I pray tonight for anyone who's in the sound of my voice, who's struggling, struggling with joy, struggling with finding satisfaction in you, struggling with finding their identity in you, struggling, Lord God, with recognizing and realizing their position in You. And Father, I pray that You'd save the lost, that You'd encourage the saved, that together we might take up our lanterns and shine for You. Thank You for the great honor and privilege it is to be called Your sons and Your daughters.
Father, how can it be that you would love us so much that you'd give the best you had that we might be able to stand here tonight and declare thank you in Jesus' name.